Sam in Psalm 51 showed us what an expression of true sorrow looks like. We learn from this passage that David had been coasting alone, along sorrowful over the result of his sin, but not over the sin itself. When finally confronted with the sin, David used the psalm to express his lament that he had sinned against God. He cried out for what his sin had done in relationship to the Creator. Brian in Psalm 40 reminded us that God not only gave us the psalms, but he dug out our ears so that we could hear them properly. Because we are incapable of really hearing them otherwise, he placed the psalms in the Bible, not only for our use, but for us to hear and share. Greg in Psalm 97 illustrated that our response to the psalms can sometimes be double-minded. I don't mind this often. We read in the psalmist's words that we should be what we should be feeling, but we often do not feel that. We know that our response should be joy over what makes God joyful and sorrow over what makes a harmed relationship with him. But we need to go to him and ask for his aid and align our hearts with his. So I think it is safe to say that we have been growing week by week in our understanding of why God gave us the psalms. But if you'll bear with me for a short while, I would like to ask a slightly more fundamental question, one that I believe is pertinent to today's message. From a practical perspective, why are the psalms psalms? I mean, I understand that this is kind of an ignorant question. Uh, the word psalm is, as Mike informed us, literally derived from the Greek word for instrumental music. Uh, so by definition, they're psalms. So let me raise the question. Why did God choose to give us poet, poetry and poetic songs in the first place? Today's passage, for example, could probably be expressed as an area of uh, prose. So why a song? Can we not express emotion through prose? I know that I have certainly read many narratives some news stories, even a few essays that have brought me to tears or elevated my heart with joy. If the reason is simply that we have an application to express emotion through verse, and despite my recent comment on prose, I would not dispute that fact, then why is it the case that one third of the Bible is expressed as poetry? This includes the books of wisdom, the majority of the books of the prophets. Does the wisdom of Solomon necessarily resonate with us emotionally, or is it aimed squarely at our heads? For the prophets, is the use of verse necessarily necessary to the expression of the message? In some cases, I would say it's not. So why poetry? Let me give you a hint. Um, do you ever get a song stuck in your head? I know I do, right? Uh, so let me try a few here. For my generation, I'm going to say something, and I want to see if you can keep going with me, okay? So this is a story all about how my life got flipped turned upside down. The life that convinced us to sit right there and say, how we can prince in a town called Bel Air. Thank you. <laughs> in West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I spend most of my days, chilling out, racking, laughing off pool, playing some people outside of school with a couple of guys. They're up to no good, so I caused problems in my neighborhood. I got one little fight. My mom got scared and said, "Don't worry, Anthony, I'm going to Right? <laughs> so who wrote that whole song, the theme song, of course, from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air? I uh, see. My wife, down by the way, is stuck. She's now going to the rest in her head. She can't help herself. So the rest of that whole song will be there. So, okay, so for our millennial generation, let's try a different one here. Let me ask you a question. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? That's right. Affirmative yellow and porous as he. Thank you very much. All right, okay. Uh, how about this? For our younger audience, for Peter's especially, uh, if I said, let it go, let it go, did you keep going? <laughs> yeah, okay. One more. For our more mature congregants, just sit right back in here and tale, a tale of a fateful trip. 
that started from the Tropic Florida aboard this tiny ship. Yeah, right? Gilligan's Island, thank you. <laughs> so, if I look all of us here. My baloney had the first name in it. My baloney had the second name in Thank you very much. <laughs> now, as, as an aside, I can probably spell baloney thanks to that song, so it's a good thing it exists. So poetry in particular, and, and, and songs, so poetry in general, songs in particular are mnemonic. The fancy word for, they get stuck in our heads, right? We've all had this experience, maybe with a certain commercial jingle, maybe a pop song with a really good hook. We find that we quickly have memorized it without any particular effort on our part. Why is this? Personally, I think it's simply because our creator designed us this way. He knows the importance of remembering things, and so he planted it as a special hook one he planned to use. So, to repeat why poetry? Because God wants us to remember. Therefore, looking at the past today and taking section by section, what kind of fear worm does God want to put in our hearts? What and why are we to remember? Let's start our examination of the passage with an overview of the structure, genre, and context. Regarding the structure, today's passage is the last and longest of the chapters in the book four of the Psalms. We mentioned there be five books of the Psalms previously. It's worth noting that some weeks ago, we learned that book four of the Psalms, which goes from Psalm 90, today's Psalm 106, is entitled, The King's Comfort in God's Faithfulness. As we will see today, this is obviously intentional and significant. As far as the passage genre, it would be broadly classified as a psalm of praise, despite how downer it was at times we were reading it down. So the book begins and ends in praise, but it's also situated in a narrow category of salvation history. There are only four others of salvation history psalms, Psalm 78, the preceding Psalm 105, and then 136, 5 and 136. In context, it is notable that it is directly paired with the preceding passage, Psalm 105, as a contrast. All salvation history psalms focus on God's saving works among the people of Israel, but 105 and 106 are specifically paired to retell Israel's story from two points of view. In 105, we see a call to remember all of God's mercies in Israel's story. It focuses positively on Israel's reception of God's covenant mercy from the time of Abraham to when they entered the promised land. In contrast, 106 is a warning not to repeat the rebellions of that same story. So, as an aside, I'm going to recommend that you take the time this week to examine the preceding passages, Psalm 105. I figure Sam could give us homework two weeks ago, I can give homework too. So, uh, look at Psalm 105 and contrast it now that when we finish the passage today and see if you can't see that contrast yourself. I would also like to apologize now for how quickly we're going to address much of this passage. Most of it is this length. One can preach whole sermons on a single verse, such as verse 3, um, but we'll only briefly touch on it. For today, though, I want to focus on the overall purpose of this message as a call to praise, hope, and remembrance. Now, that are taking place. How about Psalm 106's context? Let's dig into it. It can be broadly broken up into three sections, and I'm going to call them Praise and Prayers from the People in the Psalmist, Six Severe Sins in Sinai, and then Part 3, Continuing Concarnality and Compromises with Chosen. Liberation Ascension. Let's start in the first section, which covers verses 1 through 12. So, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord, for I declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Okay, right off the bat, 
this psalm of praise kicks off with, well, an imperative to praise the Lord. As you may remember from grammar school, an imperative is the command of uh, the implicit you. As in, go clean your room. It's, you kids know it's you <laughs> go clean your room. You hear it implicitly, right? Uh, the psalmist then justifies that command to praise the Lord with a reason. Why praise the Lord? Why give him thanks? Because he, the Lord, is good. What makes him good? His steadfast love endures forever. His mighty deeds and praiseworthy actions are too numerous to enumerate. This statement may call to mind the New Testament passage situated at the end of the Gospel of John, John 21 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself cannot contain the books that will be written. The things that God has done are beyond counting. Old Testament are new. God does not change, and his work don't count. Regarding verse 3, it may not seem obvious at first, but it is, uh, but it is a continuation of the, of the argument. If God is good, then those who do what his, he commands, observe justice, do righteousness, will be blessed. Of course, we know that only one person ever truly did righteousness at all times. And so, as Blake put it some weeks ago, there's only one blessed man. But even if it is an impossible task for us on our own, it is still a true statement regarding the results of following God's commands. A statement proved by Christ and illustrated throughout the rest of this passage as a kind of proof by contradiction. All the things that didn't be right. Now on its own, these declarations are just that, statements about God's goodness and praiseworthiness. But in the context of the rest of the passage, they take on a deeper meaning as a kind of thesis statement for the rest of the psalm. A point the psalm is going to illustrate with, with, redemptive, with redemptive history. We'll come back to this passage again at the end and see if it does take on a new meaning. Bear with me there. So let's move on for now. Remember me, verse 4, O Lord, when you show favor to your people, Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Now, the psalmist is getting personal. He's throwing his lot in with the chosen people of Israel and joining them in the prayer for relief. From this passage, we can get the context in which the psalm was probably written during a time of turmoil when the people need saving. From later context, we'll see likely they are in exile. At the end, we call for them to return to next time. But if God is so good, um, and following his command brings blessing, how did they get in a situation where they need to be saved and restored to prosperity and gladness? The psalmist anticipates this obvious question and does not shout, shy away from the reason. So continue. Verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Here the psalmist points us to the problem, sin. The psalmist is going is making the point that, just like the ancient Israelites, the reason for all their suffering is their own sin. He then goes on to illustrate this point with a story that we're very familiar with from the book of Exodus chapter 14. The story of the newly freed Israelites rebelling at the Red Sea. Remember the history? They had just been freed from slavery, uh, not by their own acts, of course, but by God entirely. Uh, but now the leader of the army and the army of the nation that had escaped from Egypt and Pharaoh were pursuing them. They found themselves with their back to the sea and the enemy approaching. What would they do? Surely 
They would remember and trust in God, who had provided for their ancestors during a great famine. Surely they remember the God who had just so recently freed them by bringing the plagues on Egypt, and would understand that he would not so soon abandon them. Is that what happened? Let's look at Exodus 14 and see. Exodus 14, verses 10 to 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and beheld the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves, or is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Look, like sarcastic panic in there. <laughs> what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what you said in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. They can't, right? How could this be? Um, well, in our past today, the psalm makes it clear in verse 7 how it's impossible. These people who saw so many great things almost immediately panicked again. Verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Notice the but in the last line. But is a contract word. When we see it, we should expect to see a thesis and antithesis. In this case, because they did not consider, because they did not remember, they rebelled. They rebelled because they had already forgotten. When we forget God's promises and proof, that is, when we panic and rebel against his perfect plans and purposes, that is when we fall in sin. Surely, failing to remember God's word is always a common cause in our sin. Think of all the way back to the garden, when Eve misquoted God, God's word, and Adam along with it. So how does the story end? Well, the Psalms kind of summarize the rest for us. So continuing in verse 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led, led them through it as through death. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them. So notice the middle action here. As we expect, uh, God is one who parts the sea so the Israelites can escape. And then God single-handedly crushes Pharaoh and his army. God is the one who does all the work. He is not, he is the one who is faithful. He is always, and he always is, even though he had already forgotten it. They already forgot he was faithful. It is for his name's sake, and despite their rebellion, that he saves them. As Moses puts it in Exodus 14, 14, they really did only have to be silent. Maybe at the point that was, he was saying to shut up and trust God. So, proceeding to verse 12. This is a beautiful verse. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. What a lovely verse in the section on. So we're done, right? I mean, happily ever after from then on, they 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 saw a miracle, they believed, they remembered, they praised. Unfortunately for us and for the Israelites, that's not the end. We've got a lot of history left in this psalm to cover, and it brings us to our psalms the next section, which will be verse 13 to 33. Well, the section I call Six of Your Sins in the Sinai. Um, we'll start with. Uh, <laughs> so, the next one is one, one verse that I'm going to warn you are a bit of a downer. Because the mission history of Israel is often sad. 
Um, and it begins in verse 13. So right after saying they believed his words, they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his words. And they did not wait for his counsel. That keyword forgot again. You see, this section summarizes six simple episodes that happened during the Israelites' 40 years of sojourn in the Sinai Desert before they entered the Promised Land. Sadly, each of these six episodes could begin with the words in verse 13. Because in each case, the root cause was the same. They forgot the Lord and his word. Let's look at each one briefly. Verse 14 and uh, 15. But they had a wanton craving in the, de- in the wilderness and put God to death in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but he sent a wasting of among them. So verse 14 and 15 is going to the story for Numbers 11, which maybe you remember. Uh, it's when the Israelites demanded meat when they became, became dissatisfied with man. Even though God continued to prove himself by providing what they needed, they forgot what it was like to not have what they needed. And so they became ungrateful and tired and wanted more. They forgot that his name, Jehovah Jireh, that it means that he's a God that does not just provide, provides abundantly more than we could possibly expect. In fact, he gave them so much quail that were said, hold a picture on the nostrils. There's just some weird picture there, right? That kind of gross. You guys ever vomited that kind of nostrils? I'm sorry. It's just, I'm in sorrow right now. Oh my goodness, get him off the stage. The men of the camp, so continue verse 15, the next, next vignette here. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Nathan and covered the company of Abraham. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. So verse, verse 16 through 18 is reminded of a different story from number 16, when a group of men in the camp envied the leadership of Moses and Aaron. You see, they forgot who was in charge. And not Moses and Aaron, but God as king, um, who had of course appointed Moses and Aaron as the stewards. God, in his righteousness, reminded them of that fact. Moving on again. Verses 19 through 23. They made a calf in Horus and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds in the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. These verses, verses 19 to 23, cover a story that we are probably quite familiar with. It's the story of the golden calf from Exodus 32. No sooner had the Lord delivered them from the Red Sea, but they had already given up on him and made themselves an idol of worship. The psalmist is clear, again, why this happened. They forgot God, their Savior, and the wondrous deeds he had done for them. Even today, we see the same theme play out as predicted in Romans 125. As it says there, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Men today, like men back then, forget their creator and trade him for created things. Continuing on. Verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in the promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them throughout the land. So verses 24 and 27 cover another familiar story. 
This time from Numbers 13 to 14. After all that God had done for them, they finally made them to Canaan, the land promised to them by God, and then they refused to enter it. You see, they saw the land was full of scary giants. And in a very short time, the same people who crossed the Red Sea, the same people who saw the, um, the works of God against Egypt in the plagues, they forgot that they had a God who was bigger than giants. They forgot the Shekinah glory. The, they forgot the plagues of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. They forgot the huge miracle they had experienced. But it was not about how big God's works were. It's about how quickly they forgot. So, their punishment was that none of them, except Joshua and Caleb, who trusted the Lord, would ever enter the Promised Land. Instead, they would wander the desert for 40 years. Until the whole generation had that had seen God's mighty works in Egypt and at the Red Sea had passed away. Hang on. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal in Pure and ate sacrifice offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up in the ravine, and the plague was stated. And that was telling to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. So these verses cover a story that is often less well known in the church today. It is sort of in number 25, uh, when a number of Israelite men forgot their God. They forgot he was a true God and a real God, and they instead began to worship Baal. They forgot whose people they were, they were gods. Under the influence of Moabite women, these men began to worship the false god Baal. One of these men, who was a leader of the Israelites, and that's the saddest part, even brought his Baal worship into the camp, right next door to the tent of meeting. As punishment for this, a plague broke out. But Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, interceded and killed that leader for his unrighteousness. Even so, the consequence of the plague killed 24,000 people. You see, God takes his covenant seriously. They forgot that our God is El Kanah, a God whose name literally means jealous, jealousy. He is not unrighteously jealous, but rather rightfully so. Israel was his nation, his bride. Should a husband or wife not be rightly jealous of their relationship with their spouse, when that spouse chooses instead to be adulterous with another? And that is what idol worship is. Both ancient Israel and for us in the church today is adultery. Like Israel, we are kin, and he is righteously jealous of his relationship with us. Let's never forget that our God is up and out. So, getting on. Verse 32. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and they went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. The final illustration from Israel's history is, to me, the saddest. It is recorded in Numbers 20, and it is the story when the people who wrote Moses was sinful. In this passage, the Israelites were complaining that they were thirsty. They complained a lot. And Moses got so frustrated and angry with them that he forgets to trust in God and does not do what God commands him to do. When commanded to simply speak to a rock under the understanding that when he does so, a stream of water will pour forth, Moses instead forgets that his God is a righteous God. And that, is not, and that is not about him, Moses. He lets his anger get the better of him, and so instead of really speaking to the rock, he strikes it with his staff, in a sense showing off his anger to the people. His disobedience cost him the chance to ever enter the promised land. Even Moses, a man described in Deuteronomy 3410, as a man who knew God face to face, forgot that his, who his God was, who he was, and who his position before God. So before we move on, 
Um, I would be remiss if I did not mention just one more thing. In each of these episodes, a pattern follows. The people forget the Lord. Then they sin, and they anger God, and they're an intercessor, Moses in most cases, but also Aaron's grandson Phineas and wine, act as a mediator between God and the people. And two of the most serious cases, or two most serious cases of the calf and the Baal of Peor, we see God even announcing the potential end of the people of Israel. He says, I know the end you for your worship of these idols. Now, each of these cases, and especially the two most egregious ones, what can we learn from the intercessors God provides? Do Moses and Phineas actually get God to change his mind? No, of course not. Logic and complete testimony of Scripture are clear on this. God is perfect and does not change. In fact, if God could change, it would be implied that he was not perfect. No, in all these cases, the, and the, adult, the idolatrous ones in particular, God is showing Israel, and by extension us, an important point. God's perfect righteousness and his perfect mercy can both be met at the same time. In each case, it is God who satisfies both his righteousness and mercy, providing a mediator. In these Old Testament passages, the mediators God provides are imperfect. Um, they're perfect men. We even see an illustration last night of Moses' own imperfection. But each of these situations are types and shadows. Remember that from Christmas time? They point ahead to the need for a perfect mediator, a need that is finally satisfied, of course, in the coming of Jesus Christ. So, for our third section, covering verses 34 through 48. Containing carnality and compromise of the chosen. Taking up in verse 34, we see the people of Israel after they have entered the promised land. So every story up to this point has been before they entered the promised land. Um, so, yeah. And we see they continue the same pattern as they leave the Sinai. They will, in fact, continue this pattern of forgetting, sinning, being punished, and then repenting until they are taken into captivity. So, starting in verse 34, verse 39. They did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do what they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to him. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They had poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was food for the blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. But we see just a small list. So here we see a small list of the sins, the most egregious, of course, but. Uh, these are the sins they continued to perform in the land that they were promised. They forgot that God and his commands, and they, they forgot about their God, and they paid the penalty for their lack of remembrance. And so we see the penalty here in verse 40. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. And they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Here we see them taken into exile and punishment for their sins. Unless you think even for a moment that our God is capricious, you should know that they should have known to not have been surprised by this. Um, there should be no surprise on the part of the people of Israel as a result of their sin because God had told them the results would be. You see, Leviticus 26. In Deuteronomy 4 and 28, we see God clearly laying out two things, both the blessings they will receive for corporate following him and the punishments they will receive for failure to do so. Um, 
how do Bible calls work? Like Jordan Peele and Edward Stewart just kind of summarize them in an awesomeonic way. So I'm going to share that with you. The six corporate blessings from Leviticus and Deuteronomy were life, health, prosperity, agricultural abundance, respect, safety. For following God, they would receive those things if they were told. But the ten punishments are literally reminded of these here are death, disease, rot, dirt, danger, destruction, defeat, deportation, destitution, and disgrace. Pretty good work there. In fact, it's worth pointing out that throughout the time described in this, in this psalm, God continued to remind the people of his word by sending the prophets. We don't have to talk about this, but it's worth noting that the vast majority of prophetic writings um, were not foretelling on the future, but foretelling, calling to right action. Um, even in the case of the prophecies about the future of Israel, the majority were unoriginal. What I mean by that? means that they were simply pointing back to what God had already said. They were telling the people what happened if they continued to sin because they had, they had a God who had told them what would happen if they continued to sin. In other words, the prophet's main role was to remind the people over and over that they were in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And that as part of that covenant, God had given them the law, and that the law came with promises, and if they continued their obedience, God fulfilled his promise. But the Lord knows his people's weakness. And he understands our propensity, propensity to forget. In his goodness, he provided not just the prophets, prophets, but numerous other strings around their fingers. in something remember. Joshua built memorial stones to find in the promised land. The Passover meal was to be celebrated yearly. Circumcision was a sign to put them apart and a reminder of future promises of covenant. God gave them methods to remember him, and so they should not have been surprised when they were taken. Even more, fast forward the birth of their creator, or their, sorry, their savior, their creator too. Uh, they knew, or should have known, the signs of his coming. But sadly, they were surprised anyway, because they failed to remember God's word. They even struggled to remember in which town to expect his birth. Most condemningly, when he came, they didn't recognize him as the form of the prophecy. Let's keep reading. Verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress. When, they, when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. <coughs> Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. They forgot, but God remembered. And so the psalmist brings his argument for God's goodness to a close and a hopeful note for the future. Sure, they are distressed due to the results of their sin. But although they forgot their God, he never forgot them. Can God forget it? Can a father forget his children? He disciplined them because he loved them. And under the yoke of his discipline, they cried out to him. And, show, and he showed them mercy. He protected them and promoted them in exile, and he pr promised to bring them back into the promised land. Remembering who God is and what he has done gives us hope in his promises. It fixes our minds on the truth that he has never, no, not once, not ever failed us before. Quite naturally, this hope leads the psalmist and ourselves to end exactly where we began in praise. So I had promised one more look at the opening verses. Let's go back to them now. 
Verse 1 again. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice. The justice who do righteousness at all times. How much more meaning is there now in this passage? We have seen the illustration of God's steadfast love despite Israel's constant forgetfulness and sin. Notice one more time the word blessed. It only appears twice in this passage. Who is described as blessed in the opening passage? They who observe justice and do righteousness at all times. Now, who is described as blessed in the conclusion? Look at verse 48 one more time. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, everlasting to everlasting, and let all people say, Amen, praise the Lord. It is God who is blessed. He is the one who observes justice and does righteousness at all times and for all eternity. After this, lit uh, this litany of Israel's forgetfulness and sin and of God's mercies, what other conclusions we call them? So, in closing, I'd like to spend a moment reviewing the overall theme and cautiously examine the message for us as believers under a new covenant today. Over and over in this passage, we saw the results of what happened when God's word is forgotten. Over and over in this passage, we saw that although the Israelites forgot, God did not, in fact, the by both its nature as a psalm and its content as a history, the passage today is a call not to forget. And the very existence of the psalms in the Psalter is proof that we are we worship a God who knows our weakness. He knows our tendency to forget. We start off the sermon with a discussion of why the psalm is wrong. I hope now that makes a little more sense of what we did so. Psalms like this one were meant to be remembered. Unless you think that remembering is only a small thing to God, is reflect again on all the times he told them to remember and all the ways he gave to Israel to help them do so. Of course, Psalms of Poetry are not the only method God used, either of Israelites or for us, um, to help them remember him, his words and actions throughout history. We already noted that they were given uh, memorials, holidays, celebrations of Passover, physical markings and rites like circumcision, and of course the prophets. And of course, now it's probably not surprising that many of the prophecies were, were in verse, right? Many of members. The priests were even given packs on their clothes and big boxes of scripture on their head called phylacteries to wear on their heads as reminders to keep the law. Most importantly, and maybe this goes without saying, they were given God's word itself in the form of the law, the prophet, and the book of the So how about today? Does remember support us as well? Do we still suffer, suffer from the same problem? Of course. For the same reason God gave us baptism, communion, <coughs> then we hold the New Testaments, and of course, indwelling the Holy Spirit. Um, honestly, he also gives a thousand personal memorial stones that we can look back at, and only we can remember them. Because God wants us to remember. For the same reason that he does not want us to sin, because forgetting, like sin, is against his nature. God cannot forget, just like God cannot sin. We are called on it because it is who he is in his nature. We are to find hope in remembering in the future he has for us. We trust him now because he has proven himself to be trustworthy in our lives. Oh, oh, over again. So in contrast, how hard is it to have hope and, and trust in the midst of sorrows um, that we are promised will come if we cannot remember his word and his goodness? So what should we do about this? 
And what should we remember? Well, this scripture I have to say. Second uh, Timothy 2, 8 13 says the following. Remember, this is, of course, Paul's advice to Timothy, right? And probably one of the last book Paul wrote in the Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, which I am suffering, bound with chains to criminals. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I do everything for the sake of your life, that they may, all, may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying, the trustworthy, is this trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So what is Paul on to remember at the beginning? The gospel. That's what Paul is describing here. It is, it is the gospel that gives Paul the hope to endure to his last day. The Paul trip that is describing our need to daily preach the gospel to ourselves says, no one is more influential in your life than you are, because no one talks to you more than you do. So make a point of talking the gospel to yourself daily. So practically, Great. The gospel. Remember the gospel. What does it look like? Right? First, you need to memorize the scripture. Uh, scripture is a balm to the wounded soul and it offends the hope that is in us. This is the gospel. Knowing the scripture. Second, it's called to call to remember his providential act in our own lives, in the lives of his people. This is the gospel active in our lives. So, great. Uh, wonderful things to remember how to do it. So, first, write it down. This is committing myself, because I failed to do this. Okay? Take captive the thoughts of despair or unbelief and address them with his word and prove his faithfulness, just like the psalmist does. When you see God at work, when you see him answer you, write it down as a memorial stone so that you can return to it time and time again. Honestly, consider keeping journals as goodness. And never be afraid to also write in your Bible when you see him use his word. Bibles are meant to be written. Second, stay aloud, both, your both for your children and for the world that needs to hear it so desperately. There is a very sad pattern in this digital history that for every believing generation, a generation rise up that no longer remembers the Lord. Don't let this happen to us. Don't let it happen to you. How will your children remember if you never take the time to praise God for what he has done and is doing? Your children need to hear the testament of God, of a God that is faithful. The broken world will need to hear it too. So I know some of you are already thinking, but I'm not good at remembering. I thought too. For most of us, this is a bunk answer. Maybe the word bunk. Accurately. I would even go so far as to say that, barring any medical issues, the belief that we don't have a good memory is a lie. And this is a fact that I myself was about the names of many uh, infomodities and many actors I know, quote movies, ad nauseum. Um, I mean, I can certainly do this. I suppose most of my life on anytime you ask me to. Uh, you see, we remember what we spend our time and energy on. Memory is a skill, not a talent. You're not condemned to a life of forgetfulness. Like any other skill, it just needs to be developed, trained, and worked. And while you're working on that skill, if you need to, write things down. Share God's work in your life with your official community and be angry, or are being angry, so that even if you forget, your church family can encourage you and remind you of the deeds he has done in your life. 
Our racial community has recently begun writing down our prayer requests and then readdressing them every following week after. Hey, what happened last week? What? Did God ask your prayer? What, what, where, where are you at on this thing now? That remembrance. So community is a way to help us remember. Right? So share our burdens with each other and then caring us to act by each other. So um, personally, next week, and, and, and next month, I'm going to try to do the, the journal. Um, they say it's always good to share a personal story. And my personal story is that I failed at this. Um, years ago, I think Mario will be sharing this. Years ago, we struggled with infertility for quite a few, quite a long time, actually. Um, and it was a hard time. It was a dark time. And during that time, I just, I just kind of moved forward day by day. But Mariel, she kept a journal, a journal of God's answers to prayer. And in the darkest times, she would go back to it for comfort. And when, and when Beatrice was born, you could look back over that thing and see the answer to God's prayer, our prayers, God's blessings, all throughout that time. And I had nothing like that to look back at because I hadn't been faithful in that journey. So next month, I'm going to try to do that. So be, feel free to ask me how my journey is going, okay? <laughs> um, it's, it's okay. The community keeps us accountable, right? So we'll close the prayer. And um, this prayer actually comes from the psalm itself today, Psalm 105 as well. And departs from John Deuteronomy as well. We give praise, praise to you, Lord, who claim your name. We make known among the nations what you have done, and our hearts rejoice. We have sinned, even as, our, even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. Yet many times you have delivered us. When we were bit, a bit on rebellion and wasting away in our sin, you took note of our distress, and you heard our cry. For our sake, you remembered your covenant, and out of your great love, you we give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good. Your love and words forever. We give thanks to your holy name and glory and praise. I pray that we remember the, the wonders you have done, your miracles and the judgments you have pronounced. Help us remember your kindness. Let us not forget what you have done. Instead, may your spirit lead us into truth and remind us of everything you have taught us. May that spirit bind your word in our hearts and minds. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, everlasting, everlasting.